do want to, you may be seated. I want to just uh, express our deep appreciation for each person who's involved in teaching our children. And today, the, the class time to be a little bit uh, more brief, about 35 minutes. So we want to let them go ahead and be dismissed for their classes now. That's uh, Explorers and Pathfinders. Um, Jonathan, I never got a remote here today. So, And would you today, we want to celebrate, as I said, of course, in more ways than one. But I want to begin by um, just acknowledging together today what a momentous turning point in the life of our nation that we're seeing and how could we possibly not uh, how could we possibly not just rejoice in the wonderful facts of a justice an injustice reversed that has plagued our country's judicial and legal system for 39 uh, for 49 and a half years and some nostalgia popped in my brain as I just reveled in the wonderful news Friday morning that the infamous Roe versus Wade decision had been overturned. And my mind flashed back to early days with Becky and me, our first year of marriage, and we were praying for the overturning of Roe versus Wade. And we're celebrating our 43rd wedding anniversary this Christmas, so it's been a while. We are so grateful for this. As I said, the battle. The battle is raging, isn't it? But the battle has now been moved, the focus of battle legally and judicially has been moved to the arena where it should have been all along. And it brings to a, the, the people of this nation, we as God's people have a particular responsibility, I believe, uh, and it'll be a part of my July 3rd message as we look at the, the, the foundation of our liberty in a new way. But uh, we have a unique responsibility as sons and daughters of God to recognize that we can bring the light of truth into the public arena faithfully and joyfully, and of course, together today, we do celebrate. I couldn't let this day go past without saying, can we just praise God together? Let's just praise him for this great turning point. Father, we thank you for something that... uh, represents in the midst of such great chaos and such great controversy in our country with so many voices often uh, often dominating the, the discussion when the lives of these precious little babies were hanging in the balance. Lord, we know that uh, as a nation, we need your hand. We need your mercy. We need your deliverance far more than any human words could express. And Lord, in this, in this turning point, on the Supreme Court, we, we thank you, we thank you. We thank you for wise men and women. We thank you for the outcome of this decision. We thank you for the clarity, the focus of, um, of, the, of the decision as it's written in such a way that it, it puts the lie to so many things that have dominated the culture for almost 50 years now in terms of understanding the infinite value of every unborn baby. So we pray that that will become much, much more brought into the light. And Lord, that those who advocate, all of us who advocate for the complete protection of the lives of little ones in the womb, that you would grant wisdom and cause this to be a time for all to be alert to what it means to be the salt of the earth, the light of the world, and a city set on a hill that cannot be hid. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Amen. Well, I got to thinking about it, and I thought I'd have a little bit of fun with it. First of all, and first and foremost, of course, is simply uh, uh, just the, uh, the beautiful fact that we celebrate a big win for the sanctity of life in the USA. And it's all about these babies. Amen? It's all about these children. And uh, when, I, when I really got to thinking about it, it was a couple of interesting coincidences on Friday that uh, struck me. One was something I didn't even know about, and that was that um, because we don't follow a liturgical kind of calendar in the Christmas season, we do have our Advent uh, reflections, which we feel like serves a great purpose of illustrating and focusing on, on the glory of the Incarnation. But other than that, I don't pay a lot of attention to some of the traditional liturgical calendar items, so I was just stunned with a, a delight on Friday when I learned that um, in the um, liturgical calendar observed by Greek Orthodox and Catholic and Lutheran and some other um, denominations that um, Friday, June 24th, was the day of the feast recognizing John the Baptist um, when he was in the womb of his mother and he leapt at the voice of Mary, the mother of Jesus. And the 24th of June is the day that that is honored in the liturgical calendar. I thought, what a, what a striking coincidence. But then I was on my bicycle that same afternoon, and, and another coincidence just struck me, and that was I'm zipping down Nicodemus Road, a beautiful little tree-covered place by a stream there, and I just happened to see as I zipped by this frog on the side of the road there. Uh, this frog caught my attention because it was a sort of oversized little critter, and um, belly up hit my brain. And I thought, that's exactly what just happened to Roe versus Wade. Roe versus Wade went belly up. And what a thing to celebrate. It's not, I thought it was funny. It made me laugh. But I thought it's good to get a laugh at, uh, at even something so, so, uh, so vital and, and, and so, so ominous. And then it reminded me of the fact that uh, one of the, one of the um, ongoing amazing things about that whole Roe versus Wade decision in 1973 was the what has now been made so clear. It's so clear if you read, by the way, Justice Alito's wonderfully worded opinion, and you start reading through. He clearly shows this. The and and even many that are not on the side of life at all have had legal scholars had to acknowledge that the reasoning was totally flawed in Roe from purely from a judicial standpoint. And in the midst of that was a, was an phrase, and I can remember 40 years ago thinking penumbras and emanations, penumbras and emanations, in the midst of the decision of Roe versus Wade with this little phrase that though there is no such right, and I'm going to translate what they should have said, there's no such right to kill babies uh, in the Ninth Amendment, the Fourteenth Amendment, or the other, but we believe that the right to an abortion at all stages of pregnancy is is in the penumbras and emanations of the Constitution. So that, that, that phrase became iconic in my brain for the error, the severe error, the tragic error, the horrific error of Roe versus Wade. So when I saw that belly-up frog on Nicodemus Road, I said, hallelujah, so much for penumbras and emanations. Which literally means, by the way, the word penumbra literally means a, a wisp or a mist 
or a vapor. In other words, in the Constitution of the United States of America, there is zero right to kill innocent little tiny human beings. So I get a lot of joy out of that today that we can thank God that Roe versus Wade went belly up. Now, amen? Amen. Give him praise. Give him praise. I want to say a, a warm welcome and gratitude to uh, both Lisa and Matt as when we go for baptism today. I want to ask Lisa and Matt just to come for a moment first. Just come up just for a moment, and then we'll be stepping back later. But I want to just say this is something that's really touched me in the life of our church, that uh, Joe Gorman and Jody Smith have prepared this cross as a memento for you for your baptism today. Can we give thanks to the Lord for that, too? And uh, thank you. Would you open your Bible, please, to Colossians chapter 2? In the second chapter of Colossians, we, we, find a, we find a section that, as we continue looking at the snapshots in Colossians, um, this, um, this gives us a, a kind of a, an application directly to why water baptism plays the role that it does in the life of the believer as following the Lord in baptism, but Beyond that, this section of Colossians 2, verses 10 to 23, gives us a key to understanding the kind of freedom of soul and freedom of conscience that God grants every redeemed child of God through the power of the cross. And I think of it in light of the themes and the issues the Apostle Paul dealt with in that chapter, especially from verse 16 to 23. I think of it as an escape from the tyranny of trivia that is often masqueraded as spiritually significant. Now, I know I have to explain that. An escape from trivia. Would you look in your Bible at Colossians chapter 2, verse 16, and notice that after we, and we're going to step back to look at this truth of the cross and how it's illustrated in water baptism in verses 10 through 15. But first, look at Colossians 2.16 and notice that there is an application to the lives of believers that takes up the last section of Colossians 2, describing ways that human beings get trapped in misleading sources of spiritual significance. And the danger is all of us can sometimes put a spiritual significance on something that's purely a man-made idea. So this is the general idea, and I'd like you to look at it in verse 16. Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day, things which are a mere shadow of that which is to come and please note the end of verse 17, but the substance belongs to Christ. Another way to define or translate verse 17 is the reality. The reality that is our greatest need, the reality of a dynamic and personal relationship with the true and living God through the gift of our Redeemer and his risen glory, this reality is in the person of Christ, not to be found in symbolic 
or ritualistic experiences, whether they're rooted in religious concepts of a tradition or they're rooted in modern ideas that people seek to gain significance. Now, to illustrate it in a modern way, we might look at it like this. There can be many different things in life which have value in and of themselves. And one example would be healthy eating or choosing certain ways that we want to eat for health purposes. And there can be a wide variety of those. And don't you know the opinions on diet and nutrition are as, are as, <laughs> are as vast as imaginable. Everybody has their own opinion on it. So the, the, the tendency, even in the early church, and we see this reflected in Colossians, we see it reflected in Hebrews as well, the tendency in some of the communities where the gospel was growing, such as in Colossae, was that there were people who bought into both Jewish traditions and some of the common practices that were being promoted as the cool thing to do, and they were implying if you don't do it this way, you can't really attain to the spiritual knowledge Remember the gnosis we talked about last week, the specialized spiritual knowledge, unless you eat a certain way or you follow certain customs or you observe certain holy days. And the significant pivotal point to me that carries it over into the present tense is that there can be many practices which in and of themselves are, are good and valuable but the danger is we try to make it a sign of spirituality. So another way to put it would be you're no more virtuous and righteous in the eyes of God when you're eating your salad or your, or your healthy food than you are when you're eating something unhealthy. You, you definitely will get the health benefits if you're doing it right. But we put others under tyranny a false tyranny when we take man-made practices and we try to in, imbue it with spiritual significance. And there are three texts in this section that show that this had become a very present tense controversy that Paul's addressing. So quickly, let's pick up why he addresses it. Look at verse 16 again, as I said, no one is to act in regard as a judge in regard to food or drink, or respect to a festival. Now, verse 16 reflects Jewish customs. But then zip down to verse 18. Verse 18 reflects what I would refer to as mystical customs or practices from which people get a heightened sense, maybe a spiritual high, a heightened sense of spiritual significance. And let's look at that 18th verse. Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of the angels, taking his stand on visions he has seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind. Now, there could be many different applications in different cultures to this verse. But the, the notable thing is that we all know that God legitimately can give a vision to someone. That the, the mighty power of God, he used a vision in the life of Peter in Acts chapter 10, for example. But there are false visions. There are lying visions. There are spiritual experiences that people seek that create a false level of being in the spiritual elite. And, and the Apostle Paul's addressing that. 
takes a lot of work to dig into exactly how that manifested in the Colossian world, and I've done a lot of that. And my conclusion is that it was a blending together of the Jewish customs he mentions in verse 16 and the quest for that advanced knowledge that uh, had become a part of the cultural dynamic that we talked about last week when the Gnostic heresy came to the Colossae Valley. And then again, there's a third example of this. Go now further down, and we're zipping around to get these examples. Look at the 21st verse, really begin at verse 20. If you've died with Christ, the elementary principles of the world, why as if you're living in the world do you submit yourself to decrees such as, verse 21, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Now, again, what specific touch, not taste, not handle, not rules were happening in Colossae, we can't say for sure. But the principle carries over into today where someone may elevate their preferences to a level of spiritual significance. If you don't do it the way we do it, you are not in the true uh, spiritually advanced body of believers. So the, the importance of this chapter cannot be overestimated in terms of seeing how the sufficiency of Jesus Christ as our Redeemer and Savior and the power of his resurrection is what anchors us in a relationship that can never be shaken. The rooting and being built up in the reality of Christ that we read in verse 6. If you, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him being, could you say with me these two words, rooted, say rooted, rooted, and then built up, built up. So the idea is both an organic illustration, the rooting of a tree that draws its water from the soil, and this pictures for us the vitality of a living relationship with our risen Savior. And the other illustration is that of an edifice or construction, the building of something according to a certain blueprint, and Christ is our blueprint. So when we put them together, we have both the blueprint of the kind of growth and maturity that all of us need in the person of Christ. Oh, but we're not just left with a cold, lifeless blueprint laid out on an architect's table. Oh, no, God has anchored us, rooted us in a living relationship with the Lord Jesus. And this chapter uh, centers on clarity about that relationship. So when you go back now to the 10th verse, you see the context and the flow. What, what is it about these, these weird customs? Touch not, taste not, handle not. Uh, observe this holy day. Don't eat this meat. Do eat this. All of these competing ideas for spiritual significance is in a realm in which the Apostle Paul says any one of them may have some value. Paul's not saying there's no value in dietary choices. The point is it has no spiritual significance in the eyes of God. might improve your life on this earth, but it does not bear upon the merit of the standing of an individual soul before a holy God. And by doing so, the applying of the truth of the cross, we find Paul expressing for you and me something that can be so powerfully liberating in our day. Don't you know, controversies of all kinds affect the lives of Christians. 
And one of the things we should always keep in mind is the supremacy of Christ. And so read the text there from verse 10 aloud from the screen, if you would. Just read that with me in that blue section. And he, the risen Christ, is the head over all rule and authority. That's the 10th verse of Colossians 2. So whenever we think about what it means to grow as a child of God, we are given this wonderful fact. He's the active head, just as the head of a body is its, is its uh, dynamic intelligence source. And when we look at what verse 11 to 14 tells us about the cross, we see that the result of Jesus Christ dying on that cross was the king whose reign releases his subjects from captivity. The entire section of Colossians 2 verses 11 to 15 helps us to put a special focus on what the meaning of water baptism is as we, as we observe this wonderful step of faith today. For it's one of those rare passages that just brings this question of water baptism right into the middle of the discussion to show that the visual illustration of the believer, the one who's already accepted Christ. We have to link it back to that sixth verse, as you have therefore received Christ. Now walk in him, and the water baptism is a vivid living illustration of an invisible fact that has a parallel in both the Old and the New Testament. And Paul deals with that in verse 11 and 12. Look at that 11th and 12th verse there in the text. And notice he says, And in Christ you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. The two things to notice is, one, Paul reaches into this issue of the Jewish life. That the Jewish life from the days of Abraham was characterized by this promise that God would make the believer righteous. Remember what it said in Genesis 15, 6? Abram believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. You might make a note of this if you want to think about it further that the entire fourth chapter of the book of Romans expands on that one fact. Abram believed God, it was accounted to him for righteousness. The entire fourth chapter of Romans expands on the fact that when Abraham put his trust in the living God, immediately God counted him, who had no righteousness in himself, God put him right. Abram was in right standing with God. Chronologically, he was only 86 years old. When he was 99, 14 years later. 14 years later, God added this identifying fact of the Jewish people in the rite of circumcision for all male babies born to signify an eternal covenant. And clearly, the Bible shows that was a sign of the covenant that from that day on, became the mark and the realization of the, Jewish, the Jews' unique role in the plan of God. 
However, when we come to the New Testament, the Apostle Paul makes it crystal clear that those rights have no more continuing value for the child of God. Why? Because Romans 10.4 tells us Christ is the conclusion of the law. Having fulfilled all of the law in his eternal person, in his death, burial, and resurrection, redeemed us so that we are no longer under law. Hallelujah. We are under grace. We're in the realm of his grace. And in that realm, we will encounter challenges to the freedom of our conscience. We'll encounter many types of tyrannies. There will be many tyrannical attempts of people through the generations to pull people either into occultic practice or to some requirement that's man-made that binds their conscience. You can't be right with God until you do these three things this way. And the apostle is addressing them in verses 16 to 23 in almost like a vast sweep of the power of the resurrection saying, you are no longer under law. You are in the grace of your victorious king. And because of that, water baptism becomes a kind of an illustration of the same way, in a similar way, that for Abraham, having already been made righteous, already right with God, but 14 years later in Genesis 17, God had said, now I'm going to put a sign of the covenant on my people. So baptism becomes a sign of the invisible covenant, the reality of which is far greater than the symbol. I like to tell kids in a water baptism orientation, I like a helpful illustration of my wedding ring, that, the, that water baptism is the wedding ring of the Christian faith. There's no power in this ring to make me married. It's a symbol, a valuable symbol of the invisible covenant bond that God blessed me with. And I've said it before that an impoverished couple could be pronounced husband and wife duly in the eyes of God in the manner in which we would celebrate any, any wedding. And if for some reason they couldn't afford a ring, it wouldn't mean they weren't married. But I haven't met a bride yet that didn't want a ring, so it becomes a kind of a moot point. So the, the wedding ring is a great way to think about it. The wedding ring of your relationship with Christ and for the, new, the, the Colossians chapter 2.12 then expands upon that, that in this wedding ring there is also the, um, the embedded fact of the mighty power of God at work in the resurrection of Jesus, illustrated when the immersed believer comes out of the water and says, just as Christ died for me in my place, and I accept that I have died in him, that there's a death in Christ that applies to me personally. So when that believer comes out of the water, he or she is also saying, for my risen Savior's glory, I now know I'm alive in him. And Colossians 2.12 tells us that the value of this illustration, the value of this visual display, the reason in the early church that the gospel was proclaimed and then people would say, what would hinder us from being baptized so that we may illustrate what's already happened invisibly? 
so that baptism was not a ritual. Baptism is a celebration, a visual illustration of what God has done. And notice this wonderful phrase at the end of verse 12, through the mighty working of his power. Read it here from the screen, if you would, that whole section. Through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. That phrase, the working of God, in English translates a Greek term, energeo, from which we get our English word energy, and it tells us there is an energizing power of God that was not only dynamically and infinitely powerfully at work in the resurrection of Jesus, but the very power by which he raised Christ from the dead is his promise in the grace of God to those who receive him that the Holy Spirit will work in our lives as we grow. And when the, the baptism day comes, wherever it may be and however it may be expressed, it is that visual illustration of what the Lord's done in the heart of a child of God. So look in the text of your Bible at verse 14 and 15, and, and, and it's so valuable to see how that all these things he talks about, that is freedom from the tyranny of religious rituals and rules and man-made customs and, and dietary rules and touch not, taste not, handle not, all of these human, humanly designed ways to kind of segment people out and make some people look more significant than others. All of these under a blanket, under a blanket explanation by the Apostle Paul, he says all of these things have zero value for affecting real holiness. Real holiness never comes out of the length of somebody's hair or their dress code or their religious custom. No, real holiness is the internal dynamic working of the Holy Spirit. So he, he says... To get us to this point, verse 14 gives us an illustration of something that shows us how fully the cross has set us free. The wording is like this, and again, verse 14 here on the screen, this section tells us how this freedom came. Having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees that were against us and which were hostile to us. Now, this is a striking and important thing. Here the Bible is saying that on the cross, Jesus took out of the way, out of the midst of human experience, dependence on any human rule or ritual or regulation, and all of them were eviscerated. Why? Because none of them could ever, ever even begin to approach the righteousness of the Son of God. There is no human attempt at self-improvement that will ever even barely approach the sparkling, glorious, indescribable righteousness of Christ himself. Dr. D. James Kennedy used to refer to him as the crystal Christ. And by that he meant his, his character, the perfections of his character are such that human preachers and human songwriters and human artists at their peak of their capacity can never begin to describe the magnitude of the person of Christ. And yet, in the text, we have a marker point that we should keep in mind today. Verse 20, if you're dead with Christ, 
and chapter 3, verse 1, if you're risen with Christ. And in those markers are the facts that God, through Christ alone, has taken out of the way all of the condemning rules and demands of human religion, and he nailed it to the cross. And in the shedding of his blood, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. So that in Christ alone, we could say, I arise to newness of life. And then that 15th verse brings us to the truth augmented in what war was won when Christ breathed out those dying words, it is finished, and committed his spirit unto God the Father. And the 15th verse of Colossians 2 describes it in terms of the backdrop of something that was current in Paul's time in the Roman Empire, and that was when a traveling general out on assignment vanquishing a distant kingdom as the Roman Empire spread its influence all across the known world, that they would, they would be honored. The, one of the highest, both civic and sacred celebrations of the Roman Empire was when a returning conqueror was honored with a parade in his, in his honor for his achievement, and carrying in that parade were the trophies of war and a celebration in the streets of the people to declare that this one at the head of the procession is called a triumphator. They had a word for it, the triumphator. And they honored that conquest and saw it as a sign of the favor of their gods. Now Paul imports, as he often did in his writing, a vivid illustration of a contemporary practice, but he totally changes the terms of the story. He shows us that rather than a Rather than an arrogant and, and, um, and, and violent crusader conquering and returning to be acclaimed, the Savior of the world went to a bloody Roman cross and was stripped of all of his dignity and beaten and scourged and whipped and a crown of thorns was placed upon his head and became in his fullness of purpose the living Lamb of God whose sacrificial blood takes away the sin of the world. And by the very act of dying, his redeeming love was a conquest on the cross. His redeeming love releases the redeemed with a forgiveness that comes to the heart and... Even the very cosmos is affected because the entire created order that we saw in chapter 1 is now shown to be under the reign of the risen king. Read it in your own Bible because this is such a vital, pivotal truth in verse 15. When Christ had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them. It was a procession of conquest having triumphed over them through the cross. So rather than a, rather than a conqueror acting for his own self-willed purpose, Christ 
He said in John chapter 10, verse 17, I lay down my life for the sheep out of love and obedience for the Father. Paul explained it in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20, when he said, God the Father was in Christ the Son, reconciling the world unto himself, not counting their trespasses against them, but in his own Son, applying the penalty that we all deserve. So 2 Corinthians 5.21 summarizes everything on that conquest by saying, God the Father made him the Son who knew no sin to be the sin offering for us that we might become the righteous ones of God in him. So here in Colossians 2.15, Paul is anchoring the full forgiveness, the full power of the glory of belonging to Christ with the fact that he disarmed every invisible force characterized in the warfare he describes in Ephesians 6 when he says we wrestle not against flesh and blood but against principalities and powers and wicked spirits in high places. Clearly in America this week we saw a turning point where wicked spirits in high places met the vanquishing of truth. And now, as we pray for other situations, we're to be reminded that when the, when the veil is pulled back, even for just a, a brief time, oh, we're to rejoice because there are places in your life, in your prayer life, where the veil hasn't been pulled back and you haven't seen that breakthrough but you can always count if you can just even put your finger right into Colossians 2.15, maybe even draw a circle around Colossians 2.15 and remind yourself, he disarmed principalities and powers and made an open show of them, triumphing over them by the cross. And so these, these, these trivia traps that we looked at briefly, these three typical trivia traps that Paul describes one in verse 16 the the Jewish customs then beginning to be applied to Gentile believers in a form that Paul had to clearly write about here and in Galatians the mystical supernatural the quest for a cultic experience that gives a person a feeling of advanced spiritual knowledge in verse 18 and then the touch not taste not handle not ascetic rules that some saw made them more spiritual than others. All of those things in those verses were a part of a, a kind of a, of a trap that would entangle people and would steal from them their, uh, their freedom uh, to grow and trust in Christ. Those rules and regulations were rooted, verse 8 says, in traditions of men and and a tendency of the human mind to elevate the elemental principles of the world as if they're spiritually significant. We have an often an example of that when people will say, oh, there's some oriental seed that you can swallow, or there's some, uh, there's some exotic uh, plant that's always grown in the Amazon, and now we've just found out about it, and you'll be enlightened if you eat this, if you partake of this uh, product. All of those things... There may be some nutritional value in some of it, but it has zero spiritual value to make one enlightened. 
Whole books have written have been written. The Miracle Course, uh, 25, 30 years ago, was written to help people find enlightenment by higher and higher levels of human flourishing. Paul would say in Colossians 2, 16 to 23, all of those human-driven efforts, whether occultic or based in natural processes, all of those man-made efforts to improve the soul and put us in a higher zone of enlightenment, all of them pale in comparison to the magnitude of Christ, the conqueror, Christ the head, from whom the whole body draws its life. And, it's, and so it's, it's for this reason, as he summarizes a kind of a, of a warning, don't get entangled in such a way that you might find yourself trusting in something other than Christ himself. But realize in your life that this new Phariseeism, this new attempt to control others through a tyranny of rules and regulations, that none of these, none of these new rules will get you closer to God. There is one and one alone who is the mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. And so we could summarize this in verse 17, and I'd like you to look at that, uh, verse 19. But the last thing I'd like you to see in, your, in the text of your own Bible here is just how effective it is, how glorious it is to know that what we celebrate in a water baptism visually, what we proclaim when we talk about the good news of Jesus Christ, is the dynamic power of growth in the one who has already done everything you need in your life to experience the very best in your walk with God. Colossians 2.19, these false rules, these man-made traditions, he says, would cause those who trust in them to not hold fast to the head. Could you speak out that word, the head, the head? Head, that's Christ, from whom the entire body, being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments, grows with a growth which is from God. Think about this, how beautiful this is, that we want a growth that is from God. We want a growth that comes from knowing we are one with him. Think about it in light of these truths, that in his death, we're united with him in a way that lets us know there's no more condemnation. And in his resurrection, we're united with him in a way that lets us know Jesus comes to us in person and says, I am that bread of life. Partake of him. The joy of a walk by faith is partaking of Christ every day. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you today that as we join in this expression and understanding of, of the, the conquest of the cross, uh, we see anew, Lord, that uh, in every generation there will be pitfalls, there will be trivial traps that tangle up the unsuspecting. Give us the grace, Lord, to be fully aware of this wonderful, redemptive realm of grace that places us not only in right standing with you, but puts us on the growth track. In Jesus' name, amen.
We are so grateful for each of you. Thank you for giving praise to the Lord together today for these two that are coming to receive baptism. So we're going to be making our way to the back to change. We've got this great praise song that uh, Justin and the team have prepared to share in celebrating new life. 